You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to don't Hello, and welcome to episode 38 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Alexis Neal, and with me today are Lori Norris and Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. Hello, Lori and Victoria. Hello. Hi. Uh, let's go ahead and introduce ourselves for any listeners that might be new to the program. Um, Lori, how about you go ahead? Hi, I'm Laurie Norris, and I am currently a doctoral candidate at the University of Georgia in the English department. My specialty is in media studies, specifically specifically television, and I'm currently writing a dissertation on the aesthetics of prestige. All right. Thanks, Laurie. Uh, what about you, Victoria? Hi, I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer. Uh, I am currently working in public radio in Minneapolis. I live in Minnetonka, Minnesota with my husband, Michael Farmer of the Christian Humanist Podcast and our two cats. Um, And I'm really excited for today's episode because I like talking about TV with Alexis and Lori. (laughs) Likewise, absolutely likewise. And I'm Alexis Neal. My husband and I live in Southern Missouri uh, where he is on the political science faculty of Southwest Baptist University. Um, He is also newly of the City of Man podcast, part of the Christian Humanist Network, specifically focusing on politics. Um, I also teach at Southwest Baptist University, um, mainly law-related classes, but most of the time I hang out with my awesome toddler, um, and that's how I spend my time these days. Uh, Before we start the episode, we do want to say hi and thanks to listeners Sarah, Bethany, and Laurie, who have emailed recently with kind words and possible episode topics. Both Sarah and Laurie asked for an episode on singleness, so we're putting out a call. Uh, What readings and questions would y'all like to see on an episode about singleness for Christian feminists? Uh, If you have ideas or suggestions, let us know at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, and with that, we'll go ahead and dive into our episode. Uh, today, we are going to be talking about the television show Dollhouse. I'll start by giving a little bit of background about the show. Um, this is a, a Joss Whedon show uh, created um, by him. Uh, the world that he created, um, Joss Whedon often has uh, is known for his particularly interesting universes that he creates. So I want to start there. Um, the universe of Dollhouse uh, is uh, in the present, but where technology has has developed to where you can actually wipe someone's mind and put it like on an external hard drive somewhere, and they've been made blank, and then you can put a new mind or a new personality into this person um, programmed to your specifications. Um, as a result of this technology, it of course follows that uh, someone somewhere is using it to basically rent people out um, uh, for various uh, engagements uh, with personalities and skills made to order. Um, Certainly this includes a fair uh, number of sexual fantasy type scenarios, but there are also super wealthy clients who might need, say, an awesome assassin or safe cracker or hostage negotiator or midwife. Um, and who also would really like that um, assassin or safecracker or hostage negotiator or midwife to not remember any of the details of the assignment after the fact. If you are such a client, then the dollhouse is the place for you. This is the the name of the organization um, that that rents out uh, these individuals. Um, the, the dolls in the show, uh, called actives in the show's parlance, um, that have been wiped uh, and are going to be imprinted with new personalities, are kept in a childlike state between gigs. Um, they're very docile and easy to manage that way. They seem to be taken uh, excellent care of um, while they're in the dollhouse. Uh, and as far as we know, um, at the beginning of the show, all of the dolls volunteered to be there um, to, to serve a five-year contract, at the end of which they would be fabulously wealthy and in some cases get other benefits 
uh, as well. So that's, that's the world we live in, uh, the, um, uh, the technology sort of uh, surrounding it. The specific premise of the show uh, at the beginning centers around the, the Los Angeles dollhouse, we come to find later that there are dollhouses uh, all over the world, but specifically focused on the Los Angeles dollhouse and one particular doll there, uh, Echo, played by uh, Elisha Dushku, I think that's how you pronounce it, um, who begins to retain bits of her various imprinted personalities even after being wiped. Um, so that's, um, that's sort of who we focus on. And as a side note, the, the dolls at that L.A. dollhouse are designated by letters of the NATO alphabet. So that's um, why she is Echo. Um, she's also Echo for other reasons, as we find out. But th that's the designation that's used. Uh, when they started off the show, it was fairly episodic, focusing on Echo's um, different engagements of the week. Uh, and, to, and to a lesser extent, some of the engagements served by other dolls. Um, but that focus shifted over to a more overarching mythology, um, partly Echo's transformation as she becomes more and more aware uh, of, of her personalities across engagements, but also, uh, more than that, the, the machinations of parent company Rossum that runs um, the dollhouses. Uh, this shift in focus was received positively by the uh, few, uh, relatively few fans of the show, um, particularly the DVD-only season finale, um, uh, of season one, Epitaph One, which fast-forwarded us for, forward 10 years to a post-apocalyptic dystopia resulting somehow from Rossum and the, the doll technology. Um, then when we started the second season, we got to see how we get from today to that dystopia. Um, as I mentioned, this is a, a Whedon brainchild. He created it specifically for Dushku um, to allow her to display her incredible acting range. Um, this, as it turns out, was was poor judgment on his part. Uh, she does some good work. Um, Whedon fans will know her as Faith from the, the Buffyverse. Um, um, so she, she does some things very well, but the role of Echo demanded a degree of versatility and range that was, I think, far beyond her. Uh, fortunately, uh, Whedon surrounded her with a killer cast, um, including uh, another Whedon vet, Amy Acker, um, as the the doctor for the dollhouse, Olivia Williams as the tough British head of the, the LA dollhouse, uh, Fran Kranz as the glib programmer, uh, Enver Jokai and uh, Deechen Lackman as uh, other dolls, uh, just to name a few of the other folks who, who really stepped it up acting-wise and picked up the slack uh, left by Echo. Uh, the show aired on Fox. Um, it had a, a limited first season, uh, was very nearly canceled, but survived for another limited season, at which point it got the axe. Um, so that's a little bit of background uh, about Dollhouse. Um, uh, I'm interested to hear from y'all how you were interested, uh, introduced to the show and sort of what you initially loved or, or hated about it. Victoria? Uh, yeah, okay, so... Anybody who listened to our sort of last year's crossover event on Firefly will know um, I'm a big Whedon fan. I've been a big Whedon fan for a long, long time. Um, I fell in love with Buffy the Vampire Slayer in high school. I was about 14 or 15, um, and I just thought it was like the greatest thing ever, and the, the first television show I, I saw that kind of understood me and, and understood teenage girlhood in a, a kind of complex, funny, self-referential, intelligent way. Um, I'm actually afraid now as an adult to re-watch Buffy because I'm afraid that it's actually bad. I'm afraid that I only loved it because I was 15. Um, and, and Dollhouse is, is a part of that possible realization. Um, I enjoyed this show and thought it was interesting when I first watched it in 2009, um, when it first aired. I, I watched it because I watch things that Joss Whedon makes. And re-watching it these past couple of weeks, I this show's kind of dumb, you guys. <laughs> like, it, it has a lot of really interesting concepts and ideas in it, but they're not accomplished very well at all. Um, a, a lot of subtext is made text unnecessarily. I'll, I'll get to that later. But I just, I, I'm losing faith in Joss Whedon, and I don't like that. And that is my experience rewatching this show. 
Fair point, fair point. Laurie, what about you? Much like Victoria, I became a fan of the Wadenverse um, with Buffy, actually the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie. And that's mostly because I loved Hilary Swank's yellow jacket that she snakes out from under Christy Swanson's Buffy character. And it's a petty reason to get into um, a pop culture fandom, but it's mine and I'll own it. So I started watching everything that Whedon put his hands to um, and tried tried out Dollhouse, thought it was flawed, but interesting. Um, Watching it a second time, I, I think it's it's still a failure, um, but its its level of ambition is is really interesting and admirable, and it tries to do so much that it can't do, because like it, uh, Alexis, you said, it's built around an actress who just couldn't pull it off, which makes me desperate to have this show rebooted with Tatiana Maslany as Echo and Inver Joka. Uh, back in as Victor because he's spectacular and the, and he needs to be in everything. I mean, he's only in the Avengers for a second because of the Waden connection, but he needs to be in everything. And so I'm just going to stop or I'm going to keep talking about how great he is. All right. He, he is, he is pretty awesome. Um, I actually had a similar experience to y'all's. I, I had been a fan of Buffy uh, and was already interested knowing that, that Whedon had a new show out. I had enjoyed uh, Dushku and other things um, uh, in, in Buffy and also in Bring It On uh, as well, which is basically Faith if she learned how to be a cheerleader. So um, I, I was already interested, and I, I, I also responded to sort of the, the interesting ideas that were there. And, and I would agree with you all that the, the ideas and the potential uh, are, are um, they far outmatch the actual execution and where the show ended up. But the questions that were posed uh, and the issues that it was wrestling with, I found really interesting. And ultimately, I just really enjoyed watching Fran Kranz um, on my television uh, in, in much the same way that I've enjoyed other specific creations of Whedon. Um, uh, I, I'm with you, Victoria. I'm I'm less impressed with a lot of his later projects, but I maintain that that Buffy is the best. And I, I said this actually on the Firefly episode because he had the most time to think about it. You know, he came out with the idea, came up with the idea before the movie came out, and it was several more years before the show came around. And so he'd he'd really had a chance to perfect it. And I think a lot of these other ideas, you know, he cooks up an idea and runs with it, and uh, and that the, they do suffer some in execution. They've got these great ideas. Um, and, and premises that then ultimately don't don't quite measure up um, when he does them. So uh, I, I would find myself largely in agreement with with what y'all have pointed out. Um, well, with that, uh, let's go ahead and move into our reading section um, of the podcast. Um, we're going to start by talking a little bit about how gender is portrayed on the show, uh, and then we're going to um, move on and talk a little bit about about some aspects of religion. Uh, so, Victoria, why don't you start us off uh, with what um, with what the show has to say about gender, uh, starting uh, maybe with with the clients that we see using the dollhouses ser- services. Sure, uh, I, I'm not sure that the show has well. First of all, anything coherent to say about anything. Um, I, I think it it goes back and forth on a lot of its key issues. Um, in kind of muddled ways. I think that's also true of gender. Um, But one thing that the clients on the show try to do is sort of make reasons that people would choose to use dolls uh, complex. And it also, I think, tries to offer a uh, a nuanced version of of gendered power and how gendered power works. Uh, Some of the early clients, um, I'm thinking specifically of the uh, season one episode, The Target, I think it's episode two or three, um, are what you would think if you think of a show about programmable people, right? This guy has um, sort of sketchy ulterior motives that are also sexual in objectifying ways um, he is introduced as an adrenaline junkie. Um, Echo is programmed to be his adrenaline junkie girlfriend. Um, he is he is continually surprised that she not only keeps up with him when they're hiking and running and rock climbing and whitewater rafting, um, but that she actually wants to go further than he does. 
Eventually, the episode takes a turn and turns into a most dangerous game situation um, where he he hunts her. Um, he tells her that, you know, I'm, I'm going to kill you at the end if I catch you. And she, because she um, is, is retaining earlier memories, as we've said, ends up killing him and, uh, and remembering kind of the, their engagement and in internalizing his values of, um, of survival in an interesting way. So you have that guy who, who seems like the kind of guy who would rent a person. But later in the season, um, you, a, a couple of episodes later, in episode six, we get um, a client played by Patton Oswalt uh, named Joel Miner, who I, I think this is still my favorite episode of Dollhouse because of the way it uses Oswalt. And Miner is an internet billionaire whom you find out rents a doll the same day every year in order to, uh, to honor the anniversary of his wife's death. So what happened is he, uh, he becomes a billionaire without his wife knowing, and he's going to surprise her by buying her the house of her dreams. He calls her, says, it's an emergency, come over here right now, doesn't tell her why. She dies in a car crash on the way there, and, uh, and he sort of never gets to make good in her eyes, never gets to surprise her with this beautiful thing. So every year on the anniversary, he rents a doll so that the surprise can be carried out. So that's different, right? That is not creepy, most dangerous game guy. That is someone with human flaws and sort of less evil motivations. That's someone who seems much more like a human person. Uh, I guess I should say, if my voice is getting a little uh, quavery right now, uh, it is because uh, I I'm a fan of Patton Oswalt. Um, in general, and especially in his performance. And as of this recording, it was just announced that uh, his wife, his actual wife, uh, died of unknown causes last night. So I'm a little shaken up in talking about uh, the content of this episode. It seems very sad. Uh, so a break in our regular programming to say, uh, I'm praying for Patton Oswald, and you should too. Okay, so... Uh, the clients are complicated. Uh, Echo, actually, at the end of that episode, chooses to complete the engagement and finish the surprise for him. Um, so her power is, is interesting there. She's doing something nice for a client who the show um, wants us to question, um, is, this, is this arrangement a good thing or not? Um, in addition to talking about the clients, I feel like I should quickly mention um, the head of the dollhouse here, too. Uh, her name, as we've mentioned already, is Adele DeWitt. Um, I, I did some Googling. I, I, had, uh, I had an inkling that the etymology might be interesting there, and it was, and I looked it up. Adele DeWitt translates etymologically to noble of mind. So that's interesting because DeWitt, at least at the beginning, and Topher and some other people uh, say that the dollhouse is a humanitarian organization, that they're actually doing good for the dolls um, and for the people that they serve. Uh, thanks, Victoria. That's, um, I think those are really excellent observations. And, and Adele ties in really well because we, we do find out that um, she herself is, in addition to running the dollhouse, is herself a client um, and and uh, makes use of, of one of the dolls uh, in in part for for sexual reasons, but you also see that uh, in the doll she has uh, someone in whom she can confide in a way that she she cannot uh, confide in in anyone in the real world um, within the dollhouse. She is the head, and she cannot display any weakness or uh, confusion or or conflict or anything like that. 
Um, and given the nature of the technology and its secrecy, uh, it's not really possible for her to seek that relationship outside the dollhouse. So um, not quite as, as empathetic, perhaps, as Joel Minor um, and, and his use of the dolls, but she also has these sort of mixed um, or, or more complex reasons for, for using the services of the organization that she, um, that she represents. Um, so yeah, that's... that's um, I think a, a good point as well. Um, so that's that's a little bit about the clients uh, that make use of the dollhouse. Uh, I want to take a minute to talk about uh, the portrayal of women on the show. Uh, primarily, the women that we meet are our dolls. Um, uh, the, the the women are, are mostly dolls, and and I think most of the men are are working in some way uh, in the dollhouse. Uh, so they're they're a little bit more independent, which is interesting in and of itself. But rather than do a sort of uh, uh, cohesive, in-depth analysis. I just want to mention a few things about some of the dolls. Um, each of the, the dolls that we see, the, the, the women, um, have some really interesting and promising attributes, I think, from a feminist perspective, but also raise a lot of problematic issues as well, which is in and of itself a, a characteristic that we see in, in a lot of Whedon's creations. Um, to start with, the, the central character, Echo, um, uh, Laurie is going to talk in a, in a moment about how she is the, the target for rescue attempts uh, by uh, an assortment of men with very different motives um, uh, and actually ends up sort of sub subverting that and, and becoming the savior uh, at the end of the show, uh, which, you know, that, that's kind of cool. Um, but uh, along the way, her, her means of doing that uh, seems to require her to be uh, clocked in the face basically every episode. Um, uh, that actually her, her repeated head trauma actually becomes a plot point at one point where they, they need her to get hit in the head uh, for, for plot reasons repeatedly. Um, uh, and, and some of the time, uh, particularly later in the show, she uh, is, is possessed of special fighting skills, and so she's able to, to give back... Um, uh, to some degree, what she gets, uh, but she's still human. It's it's worth pointing out this is not a, a Buffy situation uh, where, in theory, it doesn't affect her the same way as it does other people. She's still human and a woman, and it, the show just wails on her over and over and over and over again. Um, and it's not always clear whether they're trying to show how awful that is or if they're actually getting some kind of a, a thrill uh, out of it or, or reveling in it to some degree. So I think that's that's a little bit troubling. Um, uh, November, uh, another doll, is, is a bit of a surprise reveal to the audience. So I guess we should have said at the beginning, you know, major spoilers all through this, this uh, podcast. Um, she's actually originally the next door neighbor of uh, the FBI agent who's making himself obnoxious by investigating the dollhouse uh, named Paul Ballard. Um, but unbeknownst to her, she is actually a spy for the dollhouse, uh, providing them with intel. Uh, she's also programmed to be hopelessly in love with Paul Ballard, who is himself obsessed with Echo's original personality, uh, Caroline. Um, uh, they do end up in, in a sexual relationship, but it is always pretty clear, uh, at least through season one, um, that she's a stand-in for, for Caroline, the unattainable uh, woman that he, he wants to find and save and, and presumably uh, be in a relationship with, which uh, I know Lori's going to talk about in a minute. So it's a pretty uh, rotten situation for November. Uh, she endures a lot of emotional pain in the context of that relationship, uh, especially when Paul Ballard is confronted with her true identity as a doll uh, and has to take uh, measures to deal with that. Uh, in addition um, to being an uh, unwitting uh, spy doll, she's also what the, the show calls a sleeper doll uh, who can be activated into being a ruthless assassin. assassin. So you use the right phrase and she will turn into this assassin. She's actually made to commit murder for the dollhouse um, by uh, Adele DeWitt. Uh, now, it turns out um, that the man who, uh, who she kills totally deserves it. Um, uh, it he's actually a, a, a sexual... Um, sexually assaulted one of the other dolls, uh, and this is his death sentence at the hands uh, of Adele. Um, but still... Um, uh, she is being used as a tool. Whatever strength she has as a result uh, of being given these skills is being used uh, as a tool. Um, and even though she doesn't remember what happens, um, she's, she's still not exercising any degree of agency with regard to her abilities. Um, uh, so she's, she's a little bit troubling as well. Um, I do want to say a little bit of background about the, the doll Sierra, uh, which we'll, we'll follow up with some, I know, when, uh, when Laurie talks in a minute. Um, 
Sierra's main storyline in, in the context of the show is her romantic connection with another doll, uh, Victor, uh, that transcends her imprints. So she's, unlike Echo, she's not rem- remembering personalities, but in whatever imprint she is, she and Victor seem to recognize each other uh, and gravitate toward one another. Okay, so that's, that is, is her sort of storyline um, and her significance to the show. In the course of the show, we see her repeatedly raped by her male handler while in her childlike state. So uh, victimized, certainly, but um, victimized while she is in this docile, compliant state that resembles childhood. So there's extra levels of ick there. Um, uh, then we, after that, that issue is, is supposedly resolved, and, and that's the individual that November is made to, to kill. Um, we also find out that the circumstances surrounding her, her uh, admission to Dollhouse are, are pretty horrifying. Uh, she was uh, the victim of an obsessed stalker neurologist who uh, actually ended up deciding to drug her into insanity uh, and then selling her to the Dollhouse uh, where he can then rent her out on a regular basis with whatever personality he desires, most of which seem to uh, involve uh, personalities that, that adore him uh, when the, the real woman uh, did not, in fact, reject it him. Um, in, uh, in one episode, she is given a chance to confront her attacker, uh, and although that is supposed to provide some degree of closure, um, uh, there's no real resolution there, and as she's continually rented out to him, uh, a later episode uh, finds uh, the circumstances of her admission discovered, um, and uh, this is where we see an interesting overlap, I think, in the relationships between some of the women specifically Sierra and Adele. Um, Adele, having discovered the, the circumstances of Sierra's admission, uh, immediately cuts off access to her rapist, um, saying that he can no longer rent Sierra or any other doll from any dollhouse anywhere. Um, but he's such a big wig that uh, her bosses actually order her to give Sierra to him permanently to imprint her and send her um, and, and give her over to him, which is a, a double violation of the, the morality that Adele holds to in the dollhouse itself, um, first in the idea of permanence, the dolls are supposed to be serving five-year terms and are to be given back their original personalities when that's over. So the idea of a permanent imprint uh, is a violation of that trust. Um, it will not be the last violation of that trust, but it's the first inkling and reminder that we get that um, that promise is only as good as the one who makes it and Rossum is maybe not as... Um, choosy with keeping its promises as Adele would be. Uh, And then, of course, it's a double uh, violation because Sierra was, in fact, never a volunteer at all, but was violated in her mind um, uh, by the, the forcible psychosis imposed upon her, violated in her, uh, in her will by, by being made into someone who would love her rapist, and then uh, in her body, of course, as well, by, by being repeatedly raped by him over the course of her service with the dollhouse. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so there's an interesting uh, sort of uh, relationship between them as Adele is the protector who wants to, to step in and help Sierra. Um, uh, and, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But, but as far as Sierra's role in that, she does end up being given another chance to confront her attacker, uh, who she actually ends up killing. Um, and uh, the ultimate outcome for her, however, seems to be uh, less of a celebration of her freedom from this man and more of the additional trauma of now having to know that she committed a homicide uh, and remembering doing that as well as remembering some of the, the horrific aftermath that comes with it. Um, it's a justifiable homicide, certainly with, within the show, but uh, it's a pretty rotten uh, break for her. She does not come out um, by any means uh, happy or whole as a result of it. Uh, going back to Adele DeWitt, I think she's actually the most complex female character we get by a long shot, particularly her relationship to these dolls uh, who she sees herself as protecting. Um, but her desire to protect them is at times pitted against her own instincts for survival and self-preservation. Um, in the case of Sierra, she's able to resolve that tension uh, by uh, ordering one of her minions, Topher, to... Um, to return Sierra to her rapist, uh, but also telling her head of security to make sure it happens. Um, and what we know from having watched the show is that he is the most moral, moral person ever to moral uh, in the context of the show, which means he's still pretty uh, gray. But he's the one, one most likely to, to take a stand um, against Rossum, as far as we know at this point in the show. And so he and Topher and Sierra sort of together conspire um, 
and are able to deal with, with the situation with the rapist while uh, Adele is able to retain plausible deniability, saying that she told them to take care of it. And it's not, uh, she has no, no, no official knowledge of, of anything to the contrary. So um, uh, the rapist is, is ultimately murdered and Sierra is returned to the dollhouse. Um, and that is um, how that is resolved. Uh, and, and Adele will continue to be pitted against her superiors, all of whom, uh, it's worth pointing out, are men, um, and will ultimately not be able to, to maintain that degree of compromise um, and will ultimately cleave to sort of the, the moral and the right and, and the dolls under her charge and their, and their well-being. Um, so I think she's more complex and, and a stronger woman than, than any of the uh, sort of butt-kicking dolls that we see uh, along the way. Um, I agree with that um, and, and would like to interject for a second this conversation about Adele and, uh, and, and will and consciousness and all of these things. Um, we should mention that the first few dolls are, um, are brought in for kind of prison exchange reasons. Uh, they, they have committed crimes and are given the option to become a doll for five years in exchange for serving in jail. Um, this is, this um, exchange is eventually abandoned uh, for reasons that we'll get to later. But um, I, I think that's interesting when you're talking about Adele and the idea of protecting um, these dolls from the outside because uh, though she maintains that they volunteer for this position and that she's watching over them, um, there is at least initially on her part a pretty strong degree of, of legal and emotional coercion going on. That's certainly the case. And I mean, even, even the ones who volunteer that, that we see, um, even if there's not explicit coercion, um, you know, Caroline we see is facing uh, prison time or prosecution when she volunteers. And that's, you know, who Echo becomes. Uh, we meet a doll. Uh, we don't find out who he becomes, but he is also potentially facing um, uh, prosecution um, and also has a, a mother that he's trying to care for. And so there's sort of two pressure points that she can put on him. Um, soldiers with PTSD who want to be cured, a grieving mother who wants to be able to be cured. Somehow in the, the passing of time here, they're able to ameliorate these, these mental traumas to some degree. So that I, think, I think all of the volunteers that we actually see are, are volunteering under some pretty coercive circumstances. So that's, that's a very good point. Um, uh, a little bit about uh, some of the men that we see on the show and particularly how they relate to the women. Yes, so men saving women. Without diving too far into the Waden verse itself, it is worth noting that this trope of men quote-unquote saving women, pretty common. It just appears in almost everything Waden has ever done. And it's 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 creepy. It's super creepy. I was wondering about about why this thing keeps coming up, especially in the things that he writes himself that he's the showrunner on. And so I found an interview that he and Mark Ruffalo have done recently for the Tribeca Film Festival. And Ruffalo asks Whedon why it is that he's all it's always women that are at the heart of his stories. And uh, Whedon's response is it's something that I've been trying to answer. Why is my avatar an adolescent girl with superpowers? Why do I tell that story over and over and over again? I still don't really know. I know one thing. Everything I write is about power and helplessness and somebody being helpless. Their journey to power is the narrative that sustains me. Um, and then he starts swearing and talking about family stuff for a while, so I'll, I'll leave it off there. Um, but I think that goes into the trope, the men saving women, and how that plays out in Dollhouse. And it ties into the grand ambition, poorly executed. My reading is that we start with a show predicated on a man's obsession with rescuing a woman. That's Agent Paul Ballard, already a disgraced FBI agent. He's been sort of given the task of infiltrating or investigating the dollhouse because no one really likes him and they don't think it's real and they're just trying to shut him up. And then the character of Alpha, the damaged um, former criminal 
uh, doll active that that you guys were talking about a minute ago, he starts the actual narrative of the show by telling Ballard about Caroline, the original personality behind Echo. And Ballard just becomes obsessed, laser-like focus. Um, the show does challenge it and, and, and has the character of November and, and various other people question whether or not Ballard's motivation is just so that he can sleep with Caroline and be her, her knight in shining armor. Um, but the story of the show, everything that exists within the universe of Dollhouse rests on this damsel in distress idea and the man on a mission. As the two seasons progress, we can see the show trying to challenge this, um, backing away from the idea that Ballard is structurally important to the show, Possibly because Tamo Pinnaket did his very, very best Tamo Pinnaket impersonation and was just a giant block of wood. Um, he's, he's, he's real pretty, but he's, he doesn't have much range. But with the other male characters, that's where the show is really trying to move further and further away from the standard, the parody of a man saving women. You see that in the character of Boyd Langdon, who's originally introduced to us as Echo's new handler, following the uh, disastrous murderous attack by Alpha on the dollhouse that left everything in chaos. And new order needed to be introduced. And Boyd Langdon is the embodiment of that order. He was a former police officer who now suspiciously works for the dollhouse. And we see that he... He and Echo develop a bond that goes beyond the trust that is imprinted into the dolls. And the show suggests initially that he is a deeply moral, relatively speaking, character in this world. Though in season two, episode 12, the very end, we discover that he is actually the secret head of Rossum the corporation behind all of all of this evil and all of these machinations. He chose Echo to be a savior. He, well, rather, he noticed that Caroline has some physical abnormalities that would make her a good candidate for an experiment on the idea of compositing multiple personalities into one doll. And that is what the entire show has been building to. It starts with the Paul Ballard wants to save a girl who doesn't actually need saving, only to realize that that girl was put into this position simply because she's got like good spinal fluid and that the man who she most trusted is the least trustworthy. I was wondering what you ladies think about the ways that Boyd's heel turn um, in these final episodes, what, how, they tr- how they change the way the trope functions and what they do to the show and whether or not you think it's a successful reveal or another example of the show not executing what its ambition is. Uh, can I start? Go for it. Okay, so I think this is super gross, and I don't like it. And here's why. Um, because it, it's not as progressive as it thinks it is. Like, on one hand, she's picked to be the savior of the world, and she's a woman, and, like, that's cool, and I'm for that. But on the other hand, the reasons that she's picked to be the savior are, like, completely physical and interchangeable like she she is a body she's a good body so that's great and distinguishable i guess but it's not because she's smart or capable or anything other than just like things that she didn't choose her body happens to be a particular way that is beneficial to mankind the end it's not actually about her well and and more than that it's not Ultimately, she's not designed to save, man, or not supposed to save mankind. It's the chosen few. So it's it's actually going to be a means of further subjugating a whole mass of people because until they have a vaccine, which is, is what she's supposed to provide, until they have a vaccine, they can't run rampant with their big plan to 
be the chosen few who get to keep their personalities while everybody else is being imprinted or whatever. Um, so not only is she being, you know, used for non-personal reasons, but the, the salvation that she's supposed to provide is, is going to be for the people that all told we least want to save at the end of the show. I think that's an excellent point, Alexis, and it's a really good segue, thank you, into looking at perhaps the most important male character on the show, Topher Brink, played by Fran Kranz, who incidentally just got cast in the Dark Tower adaptation, so very exciting stuff there. Really? That's amazing. Yay! Yes. Yes. Gonna be great. So, Topher uh, starts off the series as this arrogant scientist and, and an antagonist for Echo in a lot of ways. And then in season two, episode one, Vows, where Echo is sent off as a pretend FBI agent undercover marrying Apollo from Battlestar Galactica. Okay. Um, in the background, the B story for that episode, uh, Whiskey attempts to seduce Topher because she is pissed that he made her. She's come to discover that she's actually a doll and not really a doctor, and she thinks that Topher has programmed her to hate him and that it's just some sick end game for him so that he can eventually convince her to love him, and she's really, really upset about it. And in, in their scene together, Topher says essentially, no, I didn't. I made, I made you disagree with me because it would be better for everyone else. I need a second opinion. I didn't make you hate me. You chose that on your own. That starts Topher's um, hero turn, which then leads into um, episode, episode four from that season, Belonging, the episode where Sierra kills her, her rapist, Nolan. My problem with that episode and the thing that I think undercuts any, any attempt at progressive ideology that they've got going there is that the episode is about Topher's reaction. We see him responding to, to the corpse that's there. We see him freaking out about having to dismember it. While I will admit that's a much more interesting and dramatic scene than seeing a woman weep, um, but it takes away any agency that Priya, the, the actual name of the, the woman um, and, and not the doll, um, any, any agency that Priya might have gained in confronting her, her, her tormentor. And I really, I really don't like that, even though at that point, we, we come to love Topher even more. One, because he's, he's the only character in the show that does the Waden speak, which is part of the reason why I love the Waden verse. Is that's also how I talk now. Thank you very much. Um, but we don't, we don't need to like Topher more at the expense of a, of a woman. It just it doubles down on the creep factor of making this a show about a brothel where the the prostitutes don't realize that they're prostituting themselves. Now, Alexis, you have mentioned um, in conversations leading up to the, the filming that you think there's something really interesting going on with uh, Topher as a stand-in for Waden himself. So I'd, I'd like you to talk about that and how you think that fits in with the men who save women trope. Uh, yeah, so I mean, certainly in, in this situation we have Topher seems to be the, the Joss stand-in uh, which which is something that that seems to happen a lot uh, in at least I think in some of his more dramatic shows uh, obviously Firefly Al Alan Tudyk as Wash uh, is the one saying what Joss himself would say in any given situation um, I don't know that Xander. it's as present in uh, well Xander to some degree but honestly because of the tone of Buffy he can kind of put his comments in in other characters as well um, because they're all these, you know, teenagers saying all of these zippy one-liners. So yes, probably Xander most of all, but, um, but I think there's more flexibility. There's no, not as clear of a distinction the way Wash is, is clearly the, the only truly sort of glib and irreverent character, um, in, uh, in Firefly and, and Topher, uh, in, in a world of people who seem to take everything super seriously, Topher is the one who takes nothing seriously. 
Um, so I, I think we do see that as a recurring theme that, that he sets up. And there's actually a, an interesting article that I read um, that basically said uh, not only is Topher Joss, but the, the dollhouse is the, the Whedon verse in that actives or actors are transformed into characters by this artist um, uh, for art's sake. Um, and and uh, there are consequences to that. And he's not sure how to grapple with that. Uh, because it is certainly true that horrible things happen to many of the characters that Joss Whedon creates, just as horrible things happen to many of the dolls that that Topher imprints. Uh, and we'll, we'll put a link to that article in the show notes. I think it, it goes a little too far in reaching for a connection, but there were some interesting parallels, um, parallels there. Um, I think, Laura, you make a really good point about that male focus, even of the... the, the uh, uh, confronting the rapist episode, um, not least because at the close of the episode, uh, we we are told, although this this later is is undone, um, that Topher alone will bear the burden of remembering what happened. Um, that that actually not only um, has he been the focus of the whole episode, but even her memory of that resolution, messy as it was, will be taken from her at her request. Uh, which just means that she is that much more complicit to some degree in in his role of saving her. Um, although we, we get in that episode, even as we focus on Topher, uh, we also get some pushback in that, that he brought her into the dollhouse trying to save her. So her, her continued uh, subjugation and violation at the hand of her rapist was actually made possible by his misbegotten attempts to save her from what he thought was naturally occurring psychosis um, by, by healing her mind and then allowing her to be in the dollhouse. Um, so that attempt to, to save a woman uh, is a spectacular failure. And then he feels that he has to make up for that by saving her again and giving her the chance to, to be herself when she confronts Nolan instead of being programmed as he re requested. Um, but once again, this attempt to save her ends up um, doing further violence to her in, in other ways. Uh, and then finally, at the end of the episode, he kind of seems to have learned his lesson in that he feels bad and he's developing morally. But once again, she asks him to, to take away the memory of that day and when, when she is finally released, not to give her that day back. Um, and he agrees to do that. Um, ultimately in the show that that doesn't happen because that day she also meets Victor in her original personality. And so he, he has to keep that memory in order to, to preserve that connection. Um, but, uh, but at least at the end of that episode, he is once again saving her from having to, to bear the weight of that memory uh, and taking it on himself again. So even as the, the episode is supposedly moving forward in his moral development, he doesn't seem to have learned a whole lot about um, uh, that particular aspect uh, of, his, of his morality, the, the saving of women. Um, something I want to I wanna stretch it out, because when, you, when we see... Uh, at the end of Epitaph 2, the very final episode of, of the series, Topher is once again taking on the burden of saving everyone physically. Uh, he builds a device? Sure. Uh, a device that's supposed to be able to um, undo all of the brain tinkering that occurred in the apocalypse that he technically is uh, responsible for. Um, and doesn't tell anybody that in order to trigger this bomb device, uh, he has to be there in person and it will explode and it will kill him. So he's making himself into a schizophrenic Christ in a lot of ways. And I'm just wondering what you guys think about that, specifically coming out of Waden making the Topher his stand-in and Wayden being so very vocal about his lack of faith in a lot of ways. Um, gosh, that, that's an interesting question. Um, I just can't stop thinking about um, the, the ways we see Topher visually. Um, first of all, I think talking about the orientation of, of his lab, his office, is important here um, because the way the dollhouse is structured, um, he's in this sort of whatever the opposite of a panopticon cell is. Um, he's, he's in the center of the dollhouse up looking down and, and he can see 
um, all, all the dolls. Um, you also get um, a, a similar visual when he blows himself up at the end. He's, he's above sort of looking out. So, I mean, there's no way that's not God stuff. It just, it, it is. Um, I, I don't know what that has to do or if it has a direct connection to um, Whedon's religious faith or, or lack thereof. Um, I, I think that we should probably take a little time here to talk about his existentialism too um, and, and the idea of, of ex nihilo creation in the dollhouse and how he's sort of establishing and then questioning the idea that the, the self comes from nothing and, and sort of is there a creator and what's the creator's responsibility. Uh, which is actually an excellent transition to our discussion of religion uh, and, and personhood and, and all of those things. So, um, uh, Lori, do you want to go ahead and, and uh, start us off? So, thank you. To start things off, we have a couple of questions. What is the self? And what role does some a higher power or something other than the self play? I'm trying. I'm trying to avoid getting super Deridian in in my in my conversation, just because it's a a bunny trail that I'll follow down to my own end. Um, so if I if I start doing that, shut me up. Okay. So the show kind of suggests that the self is more than just the physical body and more than just the mind and some and it's a weird connection between the two but is also completely transmutable uh caroline or or echo rather echo and alpha a character played by whedon regular alan tudyk um the serial killer who haunts most of season one they are composites who become these sort of X-Men mutant kind of next stage of human evolution characters when, where they are all of their personalities all at once. They are not the people they were before. They are something new. They are legion um, and they are special. And neither one of them really wants to go back to being just the person that they were before the dollhouse. So there's that special type of selfhood that's presented in the show. Then there's also the dolls, the other dolls themselves, people like Sierra and Victor, Kilo, Romeo, who, who can't composite. Um, Epitaph 2 uh, says that specifically they cannot retain all of their personalities at the same time. Anytime something new comes in, something old has to leave. Um, so we have a kind of bounded personhood, which is bound to the body, but also limited, bounded that way, um, to, to what the mind can actually be. So we have those two types of dolls. Then we have the real people who are considered authentically themselves. And uh, the epitaph episodes that jump about 10 years into the future for the show suggest that the world after the Thoughtpocalypse has devolved into dumb shows, dolls with no personalities at all, just walking bodies, freak shows, uh, people who have been turned into murderous butchers uh, by the Thoughtpocalypse, and then actuals actual human beings that still have a continuity between their bodies and their minds together. What do you guys think about the way those three things, the three, the three paradigms that are set up across the show and then into the epitaph series, what do you think they, they come together to say in general? Alexis? I would say that they come together to say not a whole lot of anything coherent. Um, <laughs> I think this is one of those areas where there are some really interesting ideas being kicked around, but the show itself can't decide. Um, initially, the idea is your mind and memories, whatever they download, is you. Um, and so they can put Caroline on a shelf, uh, and they can put, in fact, Caroline in someone else, and that person can be Caroline, or, or uh, can be Lawrence Dominic, or can be Topher, or, or can be whoever. Um, uh, but then you see this idea of something that is still tied to the body, even when the mind has been put somewhere else. 
Um, uh, many of the things that drive Caroline seem to drive Echo, uh, saving other people uh, and, and fighting the bad guys. Uh, and we find out that Alpha, in, in what I think is, is a huge misstep by the show, uh, rather than compositing for any interesting reason, uh, it's a technological accident, and his composite self is basically being controlled by his inner serial killer um, from before he was a doll. Um, so there's this idea of something that is that stays with the body even when when the the mind or personality is is put elsewhere. Um, so I, I think the show itself is really struggling to decide what it thinks uh, about that. Um, there's even you know, tension, uh, as you pointed out, between whether or not the original personality is the one uh, with the greatest right to the body. Um, so, you know, in, in uh, the Omega episode, uh, Echo seems to be very desirous of having Caroline come in and, and take over uh, the body again and, and get rid of all of the other selves or, or this new self that has emerged. But throughout season two, she becomes less and less okay with this, um, uh, and ends up sort of parroting whiskey to some degree, saying, I don't want to cease to be myself. I am myself, even if I'm not the original tenant of this body. Uh, and what right uh, does Caroline or, or whoever uh, whiskey was before have to, uh, to uh, eject me um, from this or evict me from this body? Um, but I think, I think part of the difficulty there is that there isn't that divide. I think, uh, and just to sort of step, I guess, quickly into the, the Christian theology idea, Christianity is an embodied religion. Uh, we were created as a body and mind and soul and spirit or, or whatever. Our faith is embodied. Uh, we believe in a, in a Christ who took on physical flesh and was uh, united as man and, and, and God. Um, our faith has physical reminders and symbolism and communion and baptism. Um, we are told that we will uh, have eternal life both in an inner man sense of our spirit, but also with some kind of physical body glorified and resurrected, whatever that looks like. So um, I think part of the difficulty here is, is trying to pick apart the person, uh, and, and that's not how the world is. And so it's really hard to do that in a way that makes sense um, on screen um, and that, that sort of ties into ideas of Gnosticism, of, of, of separating out the, the mind from the body and, and, uh, and ultimately saying that the, that the physical is somehow lesser or can be made to serve the mind. So I think that's, that's some of what we're, we're seeing in that tension and, and lack of coherent, clear conclusions. Victoria? Um, yeah, I, I think you made a lot of great points about why I'm ultimately really disappointed with the direction of the show, um, particularly the second season, because um, it it stops, I think, being a show about these deep um, philosophical questions. It stops being about what makes a self and stops being about um, human responsibility to the rest of humanity and just starts being about... Um, we don't really understand what technology can do to us, which isn't itself a big question, but as you say, the way the show handles it, it's just this giant technological accident that then sets off the apocalypse. I think it's just so simple and reductive and, and really squanders um, whatever interesting sort of social and philosophical potential the show has. Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's, I think, I think you're absolutely right there. Um, any other thoughts, ladies, on, um, on the idea of personhood in the doll verse? Um, I think I've heard that, that Whedon himself really likes the, the, the strength demonstrated by, by Echo in, in making herself out of nothing, that, that creation ex nihilo that Victoria talked about. Um, uh, did you guys have any specific thoughts on that? I guess I, I have a question. Do, do we think the show ever comes down one way uh, or the other on whether creation ex nihilo is a positive or a negative? In the Whedonverse, you mean? Um, or, or, or just in Dollhouse in general? I think, I think again, the, the difficulty we have here is... is Echo and Alpha. So she's kind of presented in season two as this super special snowflake um, that is able to create herself from nothing. 
Um, but Alpha is too. And, and I actually think Alpha's story is even more interesting um, and compelling from a religious perspective because Alpha has to make a new person of himself knowing that his old person is corrupt. So Caroline is supposed to start from a moral place and then just kind of grow and expand and accommodate these personalities. And we don't ever see it. It's off screen, but Alpha goes from being a murderous psychopath with multiple personalities um, into somehow being someone who is whole and able to do a good thing. And there's an implication that is an ongoing struggle for him. Um, and I think that's actually much more interesting and certainly resonates with the idea of, of sin nature that, that we have as Christians. Um, but I think, I think Whedon is mistaken in that, that he says Echo is making herself out of nothing, partly because they, they make it so clear that she still has the core Caroline-ness of Caroline uh, in there. Um, and ultimately she's doing it by the, the machinations of, of Boyd Langton and Rossum. So it's not really her creation of self at all. It is, she is being made, uh, by the physical accident of her awesome spinal fluid and uh, the, the nefarious um, plotting uh, of this corporation. Um, so she is actually more of a passive agent in that uh, and, a, and a recipient of creative power um, than I think Whedon sometimes portrays her to be. Texas, I think that is an excellent point because the show ends, the very last image in Epitaph 2 is... Uh, Echo lying down in one of the, the dollhouse sleeping chambers to wait out the after effects, the aftershocks of the reset bomb, if, if you will. Um, and she's not down there by herself. Um, uh, what Victor and Sierra are there with their, their child, who is a quote-unquote actual, um, because they choose to stay down there to avoid the effects of, of the reset bomb so that they will continue to remember each other and then not uh, just abandon this strange child who they would have no relationship with. Echo stays down there because she fears reverting to Caroline. She fears that she is not actually a person. She she's afraid, that, and I think that su suggests that this ex nihilo creation is kind of a lie. That there is something else out there, and I think the show is really uncomfortable with the idea that there might be something beyond what we make ourselves. There's something beyond just the cultural. I also think that a lot of these flaws are down to the show trying to do five years worth of storyline in 13 episodes because they knew they were never going to have a chance to continue it past the second season. They just dumped everything they had in it. That's a really good point. I'm, I, I think you're absolutely right. There's a lot of really cool stuff, but it's, it's so rushed and, and poorly executed that it, it's, it's sad to not see it. Uh, realize its full potential. Speaking um, of being rushed, uh, we're running out of time, guys. So let's all right. let's transition into recommendations. Sounds great. Uh, all right, Lori, what do you got? What I have for you is a personal obsession with mine that I was really, really disappointed in myself that I didn't notice the connection to this show until after rewatching Dollhouse. But it is an amazing play called Rossum's Universal Robots, otherwise known um, by aficionados as RUR. It uh, is the source of the word robot in modern usage, and the show is essentially an adaptation. It even includes a robot baby, if, if you take Sierra and Victor's relationship to its logical extreme. This play is amazing. Um, they staged it here in Athens not that long ago, and it is just a lot of fun. Um, you can find versions of it in the original Czech, but also in English, and it's, uh, it's really, really old, so it's all um, in fair use and uh, no copyrights on it. So go out there, find copies of it, read it, love it, and then tell me how much you love it, because it's a lot. Thanks, Lori. 
Uh, my recommendation is a, is a post on Wait But Why that uh, is called What Makes You You, and it's an exploration sort of of, of this idea of, of personhood. Uh, also, I think falling into that uh, separation of, of body and, and non-body of a person. So I think it is flawed, uh, and it comes from a, a certainly a secular viewpoint, but it explores some of the limitations and, and gives some interesting scenarios for uh, for what makes uh, what makes you you your memories your your body uh, your continuity of self what is that and it was just a really interesting uh, read so that's that's my recommendation Victoria my recommendation is a couple of excerpts from an interview with Whedon uh, on ScreenRant.com where he talks about um, why the show ultimately failed on Fox um, and. What I found most interesting about the excerpts from the interview is um, when he talks about um, how the network responded to the show and how they didn't really understand it. So I'm going to quote a short bit here. The problems that the show encountered weren't standalone versus mythology episodes. Basically, the show didn't really get off the ground because the network pretty much wanted to back away from the concept five minutes after they bought it. And then ultimately, the show itself is also kind of odd and difficult to market. I actually think they did a good job, but it's not just a slam dunk concept because we got the the espionage that the network wants, but it's the questions about identity that we want. So I found that really interesting that, that this conflict with the network seemed to be about um, the show being about deeper issues that ultimately aren't really televisable in, in a working way. Um, so Whedon seems to, I guess, kind of agree with us a little bit there. So that's my recommendation. Uh, we'll link to this interview in the show notes. Thank you, Victoria. Uh, and thank you all for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page and check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Podcast Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison, and Sway Jimenez is our intern. For Lori Norris and Victoria Reynolds-Farmer, I'm Alexis Neal. Tune in in two weeks when we'll discuss the hit Broadway musical, Hamilton. Until then, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love. <laughs>